0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Antique Auction Forum. This is Martin Willis. Today is podcast number 122 with Greg Elliott. His website is dogsanddoubles.com. We're going to be speaking today about collecting high-grade, mostly antique shotguns. You can like us on our Facebook page, or you can follow us on Twitter, and those icons are on our website. If you'd like to contact me... That's info at antiqueauctionforum.com. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy today's show. This podcast is sponsored by WorthPoint. Find out what your antiques are worth at worthpoint.com. I'm with Greg Elliott. How are you doing, Greg? I'm doing well, thanks. How are you doing, Great, and we're going to talk about shotguns, which I never thought I'd really talk about on this blog, but (laughs) it's pretty interesting. And right off the bat, I'm going to ask you, what makes a good shotgun a good shotgun? Um, I think from
1: my perspective, um, one is original condition. Um, also, so I, I like to find stuff that's very original that hasn't been uh, refinished or uh, restored in any way. I really value the old finishes because those were put there by the original craftsman, and they're part of the history of the item. And if something's had that wiped away, I feel like part of the history of the item is gone. Now,
0: are we talking about the stock and barrels? Yeah, the barrel?
1: so the, the metalwork and the wood, um, the, both of those can be refinished reblued um,
0: and... Re- yeah, yep. you can
1: reblue them. You can basically sand away the original finish, yeah. and you can apply a new finish. Yeah. And um, depending on how much you do that, you can either be refinishing a gun, or you can be what they call restoring a gun. Um, but in my mind, uh, I like old guns, and I like them because they they have the history, and I also like to think about uh, these people 100, 150 years ago making them, yeah. and actually sitting down and, you know, they sweated and they put their effort into these things. And when I pick it up, I'm, you know, it's the only way you can travel back in time. Yeah. And I want that preserved. Yeah. And uh, I think part of the uh, the experience of uh, antique items is that ability to sort of time travel. So yeah. if you wipe all that away... Yeah. It's all gone. And so a lot of people will get an old gun and they'll say, well, it'll be... Uh, if it's been used, it'll have dings and scratches and marks and stuff on it. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people there, initially what they think is, um, well, I want to restore it and make it look like it's new. And I try to dissuade them from doing it by saying, well, this is the gun's history, it's its life, it's like an old face, you know? Mm -hmm. If you wipe that away, you wipe away its history. And so that's why I, I, I don't like it when people do that. And I found personally in the market, the market doesn't like it either. The stuff that the market wants is um, original condition always brings the best money. That's what collectors want.
0: across the board of most antiques, I would say. Mm I can't really think of any segment of antique that that would be any different. You know what I mean? It's basically the same. Um, A lot of the shotguns, we'll go into the names and the rarities. And this is going to be interesting because we talked a little bit beforehand. A lot of the... The shotguns, like I'm looking at a picture of that of Hemingway's uh, shotgun uh, on the wall over there, nicely engraved. And so, a, a lot of times, people really took good care in making a beautiful object. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about that? Is it still done today? It's absolutely, yeah, it's still done today. I mean, the guns back then, uh, the engraving was more
1: added to have something uh, to cover up the metal. To also, um, I've been told that it was added because. Uh, bare metal would have a flash to it in the light, and the flash could spook game. I don't know if that's true, but there was a tradition... Good. Yeah, it sounds really good. There was a tradition in, um, in gun making to um, engrave the metalwork on it, which came out of... Um, engraving of all metal items. They used to engrave watches. They used to engrave metal boxes. Uh, It was just an adornment that they added. And then as gun makers uh, became more competitive and were looking for ways to set themselves apart, they added different patterns of engraving on it. And as uh, I, there was eventually, there was a level of guns called best guns, which were um, the best guns that a manufacturer could make. And they would typically adorn that gun. You
0: mean a particular manufacturer?
1: Right. So Uh there would be a, so for instance, a manufacturer like Purdy in London, they would have a gun called their best gun. And this was, uh, that's just what it was. This was the finest gun that they could turn out. Mm. Um, And that would have uh, engraving all over it. And and the, the engraving would be designed to adorn the gun and embellish it but it wasn't something to really steal the show. So the gu- gun as a whole would be really beautiful, but you didn't really want someone to pick it up and be like, look at the engraving. You know, you'd want mm. them to look at the whole thing and think, wow, this whole thing is really uh, beautiful. So uh, a lot of the British stuff, the engraving tends to be a little more conservative,
0: mm-hmm. a little
1: more refined, but uh, extremely well done. Um, and they all kind of did that because once the market sort of established itself, uh, you know, everybody's got to do it. If somebody's right. got really nice yep. engraving, you okay. want your best gun. And some people would actually order them without engraving. They thought the engraving was a little ostentatious, hmm. or uh, and so they didn't want
0: it. But for the most part, now there there was some inlay inlaid Mm -hmm. uh, metal as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, Sometimes with silver and sometimes even with gold. Is that
1: right? Yeah. So different grades, uh, sometimes they would have exhibition guns and they would uh, use inlays and stuff like that as a way to sort of make something uh, look like a presentation grade just to sort of raise it above uh, Mm -hmm. even the level of best to make it uh, extra special. Like So if it was going for a going to a uh, head of state or someone like that. Um, The Indian market used to really like gold for some reason. There were a lot of guns that were made for Indian princes. Mm. Um, They got exported out of uh, Britain over to that market. Those guys used to love gold. Mm. Um, A lot of the American manufacturers would add gold, and I think they did it as a way to... uh, In the business, they always wanted to come up with another grade so they could sell something for more money. Mm -hmm. And so once you have your best, what do you do with it? I mean, yeah. you you can't go any further. So what they would do is they'd come up with a what they would call like an extra finish or a model deluxe or a presentation, and they'd put gold on it and they'd embellish it even further, so that mm. there would be a next step up. A customer might come in and say, "I want something extra special, or even you know something to wow my friends even more than anything else." There was a company called Charles Daly that used to import guns and they had a they used to have a model called um, the diamond and it had had engraving all over it and then they said, well we need something even better so they came out with a regent diamond and they put all sorts of gold on it and then there were extra regent diamonds that had even more gold on them so ah, it's one of the input diamonds I'm sure I've seen guns with diamonds on them. Have I've you seen really? diamond sights on them. There were wow. guns that were made again for uh sort of the Indian princes seemed to be really into extravagant items mm-hmm. and uh they would have
0: diamond sights put on them and wow, crazy stuff. So. Yeah. Now, in what you your passion is in the shotguns, basically, what is the holy grail of all shotguns? I th- the for me the holy grail is uh anything is
1: 19th century stuff um in its original case, uh, all original, untouched, with a lot of finish. That's mm-hmm. what I love. Um, when you used to, when people used to buy shotguns, they would come in a leather case, mm-hmm. and the case would have accessories in it that would go with the
0: shotgun, like like a suitcase type. of Yeah, thing, it looked
1: yeah. like it looked like a suitcase, they, and they were yeah. they were made out of oak, and they were covered in leather, mm-hmm. and there would be tools in them for assembling and taking apart the gun, mm-hmm. so that you could uh, maintain it. Yeah. and um you could clean it, and uh, you could oil it if it got when it got wet you 'd want to take things apart, so they would come with a whole set of tools and if you can get its uh, original maker's case with all the tools and the gun that's sort of that 's the apex of what I like, and they have a there used to be in, the oils that they use have sort of a real distinct smell. So mm-hmm. when you get one of these and you open it up,
0: you can smell you get right that away. big whiff. Yeah, yeah. it's and like it's, a new car smell. Yeah, <laughs> and
1: it's just this if you hang around these guns enough, that smell is very sort of when you open up a case for the first time, if you get that whiff, you know that, you know, it's something old and there's yeah. the cases were lined with wool so they would, they have this a whole you know, like kind of creak and yeah. It's like you're opening up an old treasure chest. It's
0: uh, pretty exciting, I bet, when you see that.
1: Yeah, yeah, and that's what, that's what I love to find. And uh, there's labels in there. The makers would put their label in there, and they, the labels are typically uh, pretty extravagant because this was how, uh, back then, a maker would promote themselves. You would have a gun, and you'd bring it to a, to a shoot or bring it hunting, and you'd open it up, and your friends would see it, and they would see the big label. And a lot of the British companies would have... Um, Warrants from uh, royals or aristocrats, and they would have those things noted in there. So.
0: so, I want to talk about what the average price would be for someone to get started in mm-hmm. collecting uh, this type of nice grade shotgun. But what is what would you consider a world record price for what you're involved in? Well, I think um, so. The stuff I'm involved in, you
1: can get really nice examples for. Um, I don't know, maybe fifteen thousand dollars. And then the stuff goes up from there. Sky's the limit. And there was a there was a shotgun recently, a boss over and under that was sold, I think it went for hundred and seventy-five thousand. Um there was uh, the Hemingway um, double
0: rifle, that rifle that's on that picture yeah. right there. I, I think that went for a quarter Three, million. 339250 And I'm yeah. saying that because the poster's in my office. Oh, that that, yeah, right. Yeah, uh, and then that's, a, that's what's called a
1: Wesley Richards drop lock double
0: rifle. And yeah. there's, there's, you know,
1: those are out there. I mean, it's obviously, Hemingway connection adds a lot of value to it. Yes, yeah. But uh, something like that without the Hemingway uh, connection is probably a... You know, thirty five, forty
0: thousand dollar gun. Yeah. So I never really promote myself in these podcasts, but I'm just gonna say that I work with James Julia auction and uh it's it is the leading um, yeah, firearms, firearms auction mm-hmm. company in the world. Mm-hmm. And so the poster's in my office here, that's why I just mentioned it behind me with that world record price. Uh so, that is the world record price.
1: Yeah, I think that's... Well, that's a double rifle.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, those are
1: a little different. I, th- I think there was, a, there was a shotgun that went through... That Julia sold that was... Um, there was a famous American writer, duck hunter, that owned a Fox shotgun. Um, uh-huh. I think the guy's name was Nash Buckingham. And this was a gun that he had written about extensively, and he lost it. And it resurfaced, and it was sold through Julia's, and... It went for, I think that's the record for a shotgun, and I want to say it went for three-quarters of a million. Um, it was an wow. ext- incredible price on it, and it, I think it's now sitting Can at the say Ducks Unlimited. it was Unlimited. lost. What do you mean it was lost? He lost it. He went hunting with it one day, and, le- and I think the story is that he left it on the car. And they may have driven off, and <laughs> when they went back, they couldn't find it. Oh my goodness! And it was lost. And this was—I think this was in the 20s or maybe the 30s—that wow. it happened. And it was always—and it was called um, Bow Whoop. It was the name of the gun. So it's B O W H O O P, and uh, it was called that because that was the sound it made when it was fired. Huh. And um, and so the, what, anyway, the gun was lost to history. Nash Buckingham wrote about it extensively. Loved the gun, and then there was another one made for him, which was called Bow Whoop Two. And the gun resurfaced within the last 20 years. It ended up in some gunsmith's shop who recognized what it was. And, wow. so, and that was a, that gun, because of its um, uh, historical connection and sentimental value, it went for such a high price.
0: Um, something that we had talked about a little bit earlier, and I like to always bring up, and is the dark side. And that is, um, you're, when you're talking this type of money, you know, when you, if you get... Involved in these type of shotguns. Let's say the names. There's Purdy,
1: yeah, Purdy, uh, Boss, Holland and, Holland, and
0: Holland. I mean, those are the big three. Yeah, and then there's lots
1: of other ones. But
0: and is that mostly um, England?
1: Yeah, so those are all English makers. Mm-hmm. Um, the biggest money for vintage stuff typically goes to British makers.
0: Okay, um, and the then there American, are modern Italian makers. What's your makers. best American
1: makers? The, the ones that are going to bring the biggest money are makers like Parker, yeah, and Fox. Mm-hmm. um L. C. Smith uh, those are usually Parkers bring the most money yeah um, so that's where the largest Parker and Fox probably has the largest collecting communities and those are sort of your classic American guns is mm-hmm. uh, if most guys you know if it's if you mention you know uh, fancy
0: old side-by-side shotguns to most people who know that kind of stuff, Parker is what comes to mind. Yep. Um, so side by side and uh then then so over and under yeah there's over and unders over and unders weren't really an american thing they were more of a the british
1: and then the europeans picked up the uh over and unders but the Mm -hmm. uh the british over and unders are sort of uh those are some of the most desirable most valuable most collectible are they really yeah yeah they just didn't make that many of them and Uh um at least you know and today they're uh uh if you can find them in nice shape they're extremely valuable that was the one that um That twenty gauge boss that sold at Julia's a little while ago—that was an over and under, and
0: uh, Mm -hmm. so the the dark side, as I was starting to talk about, is uh, um, which anything that seems to sell for a lot of money, Mm -hmm. there's always seems to be a dark side. Can you talk about that? Yeah,
1: I think the uh, the dark side is there's a like you said there's a lot of money in uh, you know uh, refinishing stuff and representing it, selling it as something that it's not. Um, a lot of what I do is I help people understand uh, what they have the market value of it and also its real condition so because I have this passion for original condition and original finishes I've uh, developed an eye for it and I can help people understand if something is original or if it has been refinished and the problem is that uh, there' over in you know over time there are people who have refinished things passed them off as original um, and they've you know, they sold for a lot of money and there's a lot of stuff out there like that. There's less today. It's harder to do today because of the internet. Um, Mm -hmm. but there's still a lot of that out there. And so you have to be very careful about what you're buying. Uh, you have to know what questions to ask and you also have to know what to look for. You have to know how to, there's certain, uh, there's certain things that, um, if you see an old gun, there's certain types of wear that they should have if they've been used at all, mm-hmm. and those are the kind of things that, when I see something, bells will go off in my head because I'll be like, "Well,
0: if anyone ever used this, there should be some wear right there." Yeah. Um, now I I know people, and I've dealt with this a lot, and any time that I've come up against something like this, um, it starts quite an argument. So do you? have to deal with that? Like people just say, oh, no, no, that's not... Yeah,
1: well, I had a, I had a gentleman who reached out to me um, through my blog uh, probably a couple months ago, and he, he had a shotgun by a maker called... And your blog is? just Oh, some- my, so my blog's dogsanddoubles.com.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, and a guy who likes dogs. Yeah, a guy, dogs and doubles. <laughs> yeah. So uh, um, he reached out to me about a, a shotgun called a W&C Scott, uh, and he had a grade called a premier grade, which was one of their... Finest shotguns, one of the finest English shotguns ever made, and he went on great lengths telling me that it was all original. He had bought it in England, and it had never been uh, refinished or restored in any way. And he also told me it was in his original, the original case. So I was very excited about it. this. Was a 19th century gun, my favorite stuff, uh, and I pressed them for pictures. He sent me photos, and I opened them up, and the gun uh, had been completely restored. You could tell by a photo. Yeah, it, it was It was a really... It hadn't, it hadn't even really been restored as much as it had been poorly refinished. Um, and it, it probably had been done... Uh, it, it hadn't been done by someone... I think whoever originally did the work probably wasn't trying to mislead anyone. Hmm. But then whoever ended up selling it was trying to mislead yeah. someone. And uh, when... He sent me the pictures and I tried to explain to him, you know, very clearly what showed me that it had been redone. He, you know, was really upset. I sent him pictures of ones that were original and I said, you know, this is what original looks like. This is what compare you, if you compare it to yours, it's obvious that this has been, had work done on it. Mm. And, uh, he was really upset, but yeah, you know, that's what I do. I have to be honest and yeah. tell people. And things are what they are. Yeah, and there's nothing I can do about it. And mm-hmm. that's what it is. But you know, yeah. and I think everybody thinks uh, everybody thinks they're going to be worth a fortune too. And
0: uh, yes,
1: you know, and once they once stuff is messed with in any way, uh, drastically it just, changes. Yeah, it. it's a totally I, collectors. I know. Um, the people who pay the real top dollar, if stuff has been touched in any way... They don't want it. ...not interested. Yep.
0: Yeah. They not just, even at any level. Yep.
1: They don't even bother with it. Yep. So they,
0: they don't want even... All collectors, all... And I've said this many times on this podcast, all collectors, true collectors, uh, refine. And refining is part of what they do. And they'll sell their lesser stuff and just pyramid better and better and better. Right.
1: You right. know, the And these people collector. keep moving up and... and I, Now there's, I know some gentlemen that only want, they want the absolute best of the best. Um, Money is not an object, but the Mm -hmm. only object is finding the stuff. And the stuff is extremely hard hard to find. So hard to do. Yeah. Um, Are there fakes? Yes, there are fakes. Yeah, there's absolutely fakes out there. So there's fakes. Um, There's fake upgrades. Uh, So, and you see this in a lot of American stuff. Mm -hmm. American makers would take a gun and they would offer it in different grades. So there would be sort of an entry level grade and then there would be uh, sort of the deluxe grade. And the deluxe obviously would be the most expensive and it would be finished to a higher level. But the base gun would be the same. Mm. So the guts of it and the the exterior of it would uh, basically be the same but they would embellish it more as you went further up. Mm. So if you want to, uh, you could get one of these base ones and if you knew what you were doing, you could uh, embellish it yourself. And there used to be people that, uh, that used to sort of be their little business was they embellished these things, and they were passed off into the market as, um, as hot, much higher-grade guns. I'm, there's Winchester Model 21s. Um, they're the I forget the name of their highest-grade guns. But I've been told that there are more uh, of those on the market today or in circulation today than the maker ever produced themselves, and that's the, that's <laughs> that's
0: kind of a telltale.
1: <laughs> yeah, and it, well, the Winchester Model Twenty-One. Certain makers, the uh, makers' original records are available. I was going to say there's serial numbers involved yeah, there's here. There's serial so. numbers, and so you can research these things. And yeah. that's why it's only been in the last, I'll uh, say, fifteen years that this a lot of this knowledge has become widely available. So pre-internet. Um, it was hard to see these things and see enough of them to mm-hmm. develop the knowledge that it takes to understand what's refinished, what's not refinished. And unless you were a dealer or someone who was uh, going to shows across the country all the time, you just didn't see enough of this stuff. And But nowadays, uh, there's so much more of it. I can go look at pictures online, and so it's easier to find out about these things. But before, uh, stuff was so rare in the first place, and then the knowledge was so hard to come by that it was much easier to... Fake stuff, create phonies, and then pass them off into the market. And there were people who had long careers selling stuff. That that's what they did. And pretty much what did uh, it did that side of their business in was the internet because information it travels too easily nowadays. So these people, some of them got out, some of them are still in, but they've shifted themselves.
0: (laughs) So uh, wow, every every business does now. Do you have any really wild story? I mean, anything that has to do with lots and lots of money? Um, like I could tell you a ton of art stories that that were, someone did something really bad, mm-hmm. as deceiving or whatever. Do you have any stories that you can think of that are really wild when it comes to money and? What, well, I know there was a there was a Parker shotgun. Um,
1: there was a gun called the Czar Parker that was sold. So this gun was, and someone had done just this. They had upgraded it. Mm-hmm. So there was a story. That's been in circulation. There was a gentleman named his name was Peter Johnson wrote a book about Parker shotguns, and somehow there was this story about this gun that had been made uh, for the Tsar of Russia, mm-hmm. and then the Russian Revolution broke out, and the gun was never delivered. Um, so there was this story circulating about it, but no one really knew what this gun looked like. They had sort of speculated on what it may look like. So someone created one. So someone created one. Yeah, <laughs> and this gentleman created it. And then, he, his, and then he went and he sold it. Yeah. And then somehow the, the seller or the buyer uh, figured out that he had been uh, lied to. And the whole thing ended up in court. And I think that eventually, I, I don't, no one went to prison, but um, I mean, basically the gentleman who bought it was then trying to pass it off, I think, to a third party. So that's oh, typical. When, when, in, when in doubt, get a partner. Well, no, I mean, I think what happens with a lot of this stuff is when you realize you've been ripped off, you turn around and try to rip someone else off <laughs> and get out of your mistake as quickly as possible. Yeah. That's yeah. what people do. And that's why it's so valuable to have somebody who's who can help you with these things, because, yeah, you got to be very careful. But this is, this, is, this is our Parker. That's what happened with it. And um and it's still around today. It's a recognized, what they would call they would call it nowadays an upgrade, mm-hmm. and it's recognized as that, and it's been written about extensively as being that. Now, there is another gun that was actually called the Czar Parker that actually was the gun that was the uh, gun that was described about by this gentleman in his book. That gun actually exists, mm-hmm. and it was sold at auction a couple years ago.
0: So you I mean this gun did turn up?
1: So this gun did turn the up. real one. But the story about whether or not it was ever made for a Russian czar or had any connection like that is so full of holes yeah. that uh, I don't think it's true. I think it's yeah. a real clever story um, that the maker came up with. I think basically what happened is the maker, someone came in and ordered a gun. The gentleman may have been Russian who ordered it. Mm-hmm. And for whatever reason, he never paid for it. Yeah. He didn't come, th- come through on it. So the maker ends up with this gun. And so the maker was clever and came up with a story, and
0: but whether or not that's, you, you, they've tried to prove it, there's no connection. Yeah. Well, you know, so many times so. in this business, I've had someone come up to me and say, this George Washington owned this, you know, I'm, I'm not making this up. You know, this came through George Washington's family. Um, I was in a house in New York, Maine, where he played cards at their Queen Anne card table. You know I mean? There's all these right. stories. but. How are you going to document something sure. like that? Right. And you know, when it's um, when it's a generation away, possibly things can be documented a little better. Mm-hmm. Affidavits can be written, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But really, um, family traditions—sure, uh, people like to believe it. that. People love to believe it when so. it's theirs.
1: Yeah. Well, <laughs> some of the I have a lot of I have contacts in that. Um, I can I can find records on stuff. I can also find out um, a lot of stuff. A lot of real high end guns were sold through retailers in New York, like so Abercrombie mm-hmm. and Fitch. Um, yep. There used to be a company called Von Leckmirk and Detmold. Uh, so these were early retailers, uh, very high-end retailers of these items, and mm-hmm. they kept pretty extensive records. Mm-hmm. And I have access to people who have can research these records. Wow. So if people say, you know, this gun was made for X, Y, or Z or sold, I can go back and find out in the records. Yeah. And sometimes you find out um, that it's true. A lot of times you find out it, it's a misunderstood story. Yeah. Um, but... You know, if you can, and obviously, if you find that stuff out, it's can add tremendous value to these things, yeah. And it's also just fun to find out. I mean, the, there was yeah. a gun uh, I was so, dealing with that uh, it's just fascinating to find out who ordered these things. And um, there was a because these a lot of these guns were they were extremely expensive in their day, they were they're expensive today to have new, mm-hmm. and back then they were just as expensive,
0: sure, relative,
1: so, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, like a, a brand new. Um, boss over and under shotgun back in 1920, probably, you know, it cost probably uh, more than what an average person's home would have cost. Wow. And that same is very true today. They're extremely expensive. So these people that bought them were very affluent. And uh, there was one gun I was dealing with, and the gentleman had, he was uh, involved in the automobile industry, and he had invented a way to make automobile frames or something like that. And that's, he was part of the industrial Boom in Detroit, and it's just interesting to find out Yeah. these family connections and
0: yeah. And you have so. a, you have an advantage where most other segments of the business do not have, and that's serial numbers. Mm-hmm. Things can be traced through serial numbers. What what makes a a shotgun besides the maker? What makes one good compared well, to one that isn't? I think it's uh, that's a that's a really good question because.
1: I try to spend a lot of time personally trying to understand what quality is. So there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of sentimental attachment to items, mm-hmm. and then there's a, re- a real quality, yeah. and those two. So something may sell for a lot of money, but it may not be actual high quality because there's a lot of sentimental attachment. And then there's others. I mean, st- across the board. Um, yeah. Well, there's there are, there are a lot of shotguns that. Um, may sell for lots and lots of money, but no one's buying them for their actual intrinsic quality. really Yeah, they're buying them for their they're buying them for the romance of them. they're right. buying them for the American myth that's associated with them. Yeah They're buying them because the market itself has done a really good job of creating a story around them. And what I mean by that is there are books around them, they're collecting communities. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the stuff's known. Um, and basically what's happened is there's a brand that's been created and that brand has associations that people like. And so when someone says you know, it's like, if I say Mercedes Benz to you, you think Mm -hmm. a certain thing Mm -hmm. and whether or not that's true is beside the point. And that's very much the case with the shotguns. So I try to find out, you know, part of what I really try to do is understand, well, what is good? What's quality? And there's definitely, there's higher levels of quality. There's things you look for. um, And I've been able to acquire that knowledge just because I I pester a lot of people with questions. I'm Mm -hmm. very fortunate that I know people that make these guns and they work on them for a living and they take the time to answer my questions. And so there's definitely, in my mind, sort of the the best of the best is the British stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, Your British... Uh, what's called a side lock British shotgun, and mm-hmm. I like the stuff that was made before World War II. I think that's your highest quality, um, even before World War One. Uh, people were cheap back then, and they, you know, they could afford to put a lot of time into making stuff, mm-hmm. and uh, so and and people and they made a lot of them too. So the people that made them had a tremendous amount of experience doing things. Yeah, um, they were working with a lot of hand tools and. They just so each one was separately. Well, to a degree, it was made Mm -hmm. by hand. Yeah, I mean, there was still mechanization. uh, There was still equipment involved, Mm -hmm. but the equipment um, wasn't sophisticated enough to uh, take over the process back then. They didn't have CNC machines and stuff like that. So when they made barrels, they had to start start with a a block of metal. When they made the little actions, they had to start with a chunk of metal. And And what's a Damascus barrel? So Damascus, there's two types of. Uh, basically two types of barrels for shotguns Mm -hmm. or for basically any types of side-by-sides and -and over-and-unders. There was Damascus steel and then there was fluid steel. And Damascus steel is older um, and it was made through a different process. And the way they made Damascus steel was they basically had um, a rod and they would uh, form strips of steel, sort of like spaghetti, and then they would wrap these, uh, the spaghetti steel around the rod. And they would wrap it in so, sort of a perpendicular pattern to the rod. So they would wrap it up the, uh, the rod like it was, you know, like they were wrapping rope around a stick. Mm-hmm. And as they were doing this, they would hit these with hammers. And this would, the steel that they were wrapping would be, uh, would be hot and it would form welds. And this would uh, then harden, dry, you know, uh, I guess cool, and it would form. A tube, and it was this process was called Damascus steel. They would do some other things to this steel before they wrapped it. But basically, um, it was so your your barrel was composed of uh, sort of wrapped items, and that's Damascus steel. Fluid steel was basically uh, they poured it into a mold, Mm -hmm. and this block of steel was created. And then I think they drilled it out, and then they to form a tube. And then they would rough the tube out as best as they could with machines, with sort of the lathes and the machines they had back then. And this is, so the fluid steel sort of revolution is about 1880, and that's when, um, at least in uh, the UK, that's when you see these guns start coming onto the market. Do you mean
0: everything before that time was Damascus?
1: Yeah, everything was a type of Damascus. There are different That's types right. of Damascus, mm-hmm. and if you go even back further, mm-hmm. there's different. They were using slightly different techniques. Mm-hmm. So, sort of most of the um, so I want to say about 1750 on to about 1880, most of that stuff is all Damascus steel. Mm-hmm. You start seeing fluid steel come on the market. Um, originally, it was uh, it was a little slow to gain acceptance. And then it sort of took over, and I think it took over because it was a cheaper process mm. of manufacturing, yeah. and um, it was a little. So, because it was a little less expensive, the makers could make a little more money on it. Mm. Um, and there's a perception today that Damascus steel is dangerous, which isn't really true. Um, that it would split apart or something. Yeah, it would blow apart, or it was prone to it was prone to ruptures. Um, and there were a lot of tests done when uh, fluid steel came out. They tested fluid against Damascus in the UK. And it was actually found that in some cases that the Damascus was actually stronger. The problem you have is that a lot of Damascus steel guns were, are old. And over mm-hmm. time, people mess with them. They, yeah. um, they go inside the barrels and they do things that thin the barrels out. They cause damage to the barrels. Mm-hmm. And these, this creates weak spots. Mm-hmm. And that's why you have problems. Or people put shells cartridges in them that are too strong and so so there it's not necessarily steel's fault it's uh sort of what people have
0: done to it since it was born Mm and created now you mentioned earlier i think you said it was the fox uh shotgun that was lost in the 20s and Mm -hmm. resurfaced and um it's really that's quite an amazing story wonder how it resurfaced do you have any stories of someone getting a really good find well i think um yeah i mean i I find stuff
1: uh, I find stuff um quite often and it's, I find stuff in the sense of um, people reach out to me uh, yeah. you know they 'll reach out to me through my blog with items mm-hmm. and um they're they 're trying to understand what they have and what it 's worth and uh, there was a gentleman who reached out to me and um he asked me a few questions about a certain gun, and he asked me if I knew anything about it, and I knew some stuff about it, and I was able to help him out. and he told me that I was the only person that he had come across who knew enough about this item to give him a an valuation and really explain it to him. And then he said, "I also have some other things, and would you be able to help me out with them?" And I said, "You know, absolutely." And he named off a few items, and I frankly did not believe he had them. I thought they're he was that just, rare. Yeah, they're that yeah. rare, and um, some people just like to talk, and I assume sure. I assume that's who he was. Yeah. And uh, I said, well, you know, the, those things sound wonderful. Why don't you send me some pictures, and then we'll go from there. And he sent me the pictures, and I opened up the pictures, and I was absolutely blown away. He was telling the <laughs> truth, yeah. and he did you go see him? I did. Go, yeah. So I, went, I traveled out to see. Him. I saw the pictures, and I had to go see this stuff just because um, it's people who have even been collecting this stuff for a long time didn't really know this stuff existed. It was sort of things that had been written about in books, but people really didn't know.
0: Hmm.
1: Again, they didn't really know if it was around anymore or if the books were even accurate. So when I saw this stuff, I went out and saw it, and this was one of those cases, you know, he had it in a leather case and I opened it up and I got that that whiff of history yeah. <laughs> and and there it was sitting there. And not only was... It, uh, what he said it was, it was in fantastic original condition. Some of these things had never been used.
0: Never been used.
1: Yeah, it? never been used. Yeah, His grandfather wow. had just collected them. His grandfather yeah. had had a passion for them and uh, collected them and put them aside and the family was good enough to just uh, preserve them and take care of them properly. They knew they wow. were something that was valuable
0: and they respected them. They didn't re- yes. try to restore them or any nonsense yeah. like that. Here's a, Here's the thing that when someone has something really great, they do, in my opinion, this is my opinion only, have a responsibility to let who's ever caring for them in the future to know what they are. Because uh, there are so many great finds in estate sales and that people have absolutely no idea because the family didn't let them know, you have to take care of this, you have to preserve this. This is something really important. Yeah, absolutely. uh,
1: Well, some of the people I work with too, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of people who, uh, there'll be, um, older gentlemen who have collections that they, um, they know are valuable, but they want them to be documented. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's for the purpose of, uh, when they're gone. So people understand what it is and also so that, uh, their widow doesn't basically get taken advantage of. Right. There's tons of unscrupulous dealers and buyers out there. Mm -hmm. Um, and if things aren't. Properly documented, it's very easy for someone to get taken advantage of. A lot I mean, no people one thinks make that a
0: living a, that way. Well, yeah, yeah a lot,
1: lot of people, people. I mean, no one thinks a shotgun, some old shotgun that your grandfather has in his, you know, in some case in the closet, could be worth fifty thousand dollars. Sure, but it's pretty easy. I yeah. thought was something else too. You know, I think what I actually find is that people who have nice stuff know it's nice, and. Mm-hmm. That's true, and they they may not know that it's. They may not know uh, how valuable it is, but they know it's valuable. Mm-hmm. And stuff like the antique roadshow and all these things has given people the impression now that anything old's worth a fortune.
0: Yeah. But
1: I've, I very rarely do I come across stuff that, um, it, in firearms I don't come across stuff that people are completely ignorant of it. And I think that's because of the internet. People can look up a lot of this stuff. Mm-hmm. It isn't that rare. Uh, most of it isn't that rare. So I usually find that people have a general sense. They may not understand what its actual condition is Mm -hmm. and they reach out to me for that. And the other thing people don't know is the best way to monetize things. They don't know the smartest ways to sell stuff. Mm -hmm. They don't know um, which dealers can help them get the most money for stuff. So that's what I help a lot of people do is just, you know, with a a shotgun, there's certain shotguns you don't take it down to Al's gun shop down on the corner. Yeah. And let him deal with it because he doesn't have the knowledge or the contacts with the industry to get top money for things. Right, right. So, um,
0: and auction, you know, I mean, um, getting back to Julia's, the last two auctions were amazing mm-hmm. 18 million and 16 million. Right. Those numbers are just unheard of in this. So, a lot of things going to auction is not a bad idea.
1: No, auction's a great place, especially if you have something. Um, that's extremely, uh, if it's in really good shape and really high-end collectors want it, it's a great place to go because uh, what you'll find is guys will get passionate about things and they'll pay more at an auction than they would in a a retail store. Mm -hmm. And uh, so it's a great place. I think for a lot of stuff, that's where you can get top dollar. Um, I know that some items have brought tons of money at auctions and then they've been sold again for even more money. Mm -hmm. But that's typically by people who... You have very good contacts. Those yeah. are dealers yeah. who have other people lined up for stuff. Right. Um, but I think they, for the most part, for a seller, the great thing about auctions is uh, also that there's a date and your item will most likely be sold at that date. There's no, you can consign stuff. I've seen, there's some dealers that have stuff on consignment and it's been there for five or six years. So yes. as a, yeah. as an owner, you're sitting there waiting for your check and- yeah. And it comes. Yeah, and the consignment world is sort of fraught with ways to be taken advantage of, too. The uh, you know, auctions are what they are. You can watch what the prices are, you know, yeah. it's it's a much safer world. You get your check hopefully in 30 days, you're all done.
0: Yeah. We're just about ready to wrap this up. I was at a house yesterday, and the gentleman had sold a um cult, um through auction through our company, and he said, that guns are an extremely good investment. And he said he made 750% on his gun when he bought it. Uh, He did very well on his particular situation. A lot of times in this whole market, we don't really tell people it's a great idea to invest. But how do you feel about guns as far as investing? I think uh, so if you buy the right stuff, I don't think you're going to lose money. And
1: if you get lucky, you can make money. And that's so, well put. So, I, there's definitely there's there's uh, there have been bubbles mm-hmm. recently. There's been bubbles in um, Italian shotguns. There's been bubbles in some American stuff. You mean bubbles that have burst? So yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Italian. There were there was a big run on Italian, um, really high end Italian stuff for a while. That mm-hmm. bubble's kind of burst. Yeah. There was a bubble on some English stuff that's kind of burst. But the stuff that always holds its value, in my mind, again, going back to original condition um, mm-hmm. and hard-to-find items, that stuff, there's always a market for it. People are always going to want it. Um, and the stuff that seems, for some, I, I don't know why, the stuff that always seems to go up in value are small-gauge um, American shotguns. So your Parkers, your Foxes, those types of items, the upper grades um, in original condition, there's more seems to be more and more people out there who want them the american makers have the american mystique they have americana behind them oh. and and people collect that mm-hmm. you know no one's paying uh, you know i see a colt over there on the wall and this it says sold for $63,000 that gun mechanically isn't worth $63,000 yeah. Yeah, they're buying what you're saying. they're buying the american mystique yeah. the american west that's what they're that's what people are buying
0: wow Interesting. and
1: And that's very powerful with all the American stuff. And that's what pushes it. And that's not going away. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, people are rediscovering that more and more every day, becoming more interested in it. Uh, So that's, if someone said to me, where would I, what would I buy if I wanted to invest? I would buy small bore uh, American guns. I'd buy Parkers or Foxes and I'd buy all original condition I wouldn't accept anything else. The problem is that you might find one of those a year yeah you know you 're going to spend, and most guys they want to they i I find that uh when people uh say they want to invest they 're looking for a a way to rationalize their desire to buy <laughs> you know <laughs> yeah they 're trying to make it seem like they 're not just buying stuff, yeah so you have to have discipline like if you want to be a good investor, mm-hmm. you have to sit and you have to analyze everything, and you have to be kind of cold and ruthless
0: yes and well, you know there was guns. just a uh there was just a report on um, public radio today. I was listening to about um, people that wait, a little, can just sit back and wait, are the ones that are become more successful. Mm-hmm. So someone that's patient that wants to buy something really good is probably going to be a lot better off than someone who's going to just try to race out and find something.
1: Yeah, I think if you if you want to be a good collector at anything, you have to define your parameters. Mm-hmm. You have to focus. And then you have to be very disciplined. You just simply, uh, I collect stuff myself, and I know that I've gone from my, uh, I've gone from an accumulator to a collector, and I've and I continue to refine. So I used to be at a point where I just liked, I liked all the stuff, and I would get it. Yeah. And now there's stuff that I'm looking for certain things, and I'm trying to focus more and more on that. And uh, I think that's, I think that's a, that's a normal path for a lot of collectors. And if you want to. If you want to build something that's going to be worth more in the future, that's what you have to do. Mm-hmm. You know, you have to, I might see personally, I might see one or two things a year that um, fit my criterium.
0: And then if I can afford them is another matter. Yeah.
1: You know, so. <laughs> it's always
0: key. Well, yeah. thanks so much. So this is Martin Willis with Greg Elliott from Dog, dogsanddoubles.com. Yeah, dogsanddoubles.com. Yeah. And thanks so much. It's been great. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you very much. And we're signing off. This podcast is sponsored by WorthPoint. Find out what your antiques are worth at worthpoint.com.